Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. Welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. Thank you for making time today to be with uh, me. We're going to have a wonderful conversation with Ace Collins, uh, who's written 99 books. And so when you look through his library of books and you start to look at all the things he's uh, written about, one of the things that jumped off the page for me was he's written a book called Man's Best Friend, True Stories, Great American Dogs. And so we're going to have a wonderful hour today talking about man's best friend. That's uh, coming up uh, for the full hour. And I know this is going to be uh, a very interesting time to reflect on um, maybe a dog you love or a dog you loved or a dog you're going to love because there's nothing nothing like a canine uh, to be part of your family and it's just to be a constant companion. So we're going to enjoy that. We'll take a little break. We'll bring on Ace. God doesn't want us to worry. Here's Dr. Linda Mintel. Everyone worries, don't they? Well, just listen to the nightly news or read the economic forecast or even talk to your family. Opportunities to worry present themselves many times during our day. So why would God tell us not to worry when it almost seems like it's impossible? First, he knows the physical damage worry does to our bodies. Second, he wants to calm us down by taking the burden of control away from us. Hey, we don't have control, no matter how much we think we do, he does. And third, he wants us to trust him. The root of worry is doubting God. Doubt is not trusting that God is who he says he is, or he will do what he says he will do. So every day, take your worries to God, rehearse His goodness, accept His grace, and walk in the confidence that He is in control and He's working all things for your good. Be at peace today and know that God has got you no matter what. I'm so glad to be welcoming back to the show Ace Collins. He uh, has written, I think, 99 books, getting close to that 100 mark. He wrote his first story in third grade, and he went into college as a journalism and English major. And his uh, breakout book out of the 99 uh, that he's written so far was Lassie, A Dog's Life. And he since has written several books about dogs. And if you have a dog or love a dog or have loved a dog, you're going to love this hour. Uh, The book that I'm going to chat about a little bit is called uh, Man's Best Hero, True Stories, Great American Dogs. Ace, welcome back to the show. It is a joy to be back with you all. It's always fun to uh, be with you. And it's it's amazing for a guy like me who grew up with collies, who grew up with uh, around dogs, uh, many of them working dogs, as a matter of fact, you know, uh, working with herds and things like that or bringing in the cows at night wow. to milk and things like that. To have dogs in your life, right now about five feet from me is a uh, 11-year-old collie named Sammy that we rescued, uh, and Sammy was born totally blind. Yet I think I've learned more lessons from Sammy, um, uh, this dog that can't see, than any animal I've ever had in my entire life. And, and so dogs are great teachers. They, lo- they love unconditionally. I, I was actually... Um, 
at a worship service with about 1,550 people one time in a theater in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee. So on a Sunday morning, and I was asked to speak. After I spoke, I took questions, and I got a question that I thought was a very interesting question, and they said, who is the best Christian role model you ever had? And about a second later, I answered Lassie. <laughs> uh, and they were going, what? And I Lassie. said, well, Lassie. And I said, yeah. I said, I said, Lassie, if you watch the television shows and the movies, Lassie would lay down. And I, I always say his because Lassie was always played by male dogs. And I'll explain that in a second. But I, I said, Lassie would lay down his life for you without question. Lassie didn't judge you. Lassie would forgive you. Lassie would accept you. And I started listing all the qualities that Lassie had that, realistically speaking, most of us who have had best friends that were canines can relate to that because there is a lot that we can learn that we can apply to a Christian life in how a dog responds to us and to other people. Um, and so when you look at bravery, courage, acceptance, uh, forgiveness, unconditional love. You see it in a canine. And the book that, you know, that we're going to talk about some today is one of three that I got to write for Abington Press. Um, one of them was, you know, uh, the one that we're talking about is Man's Best Hero. The next one was Service Tales, which is, talks about dogs that are service animals. And the last one that I've written in that line was In the Line of Fire, which is about military and police dogs and uh, the amazing things that they could do. But I wouldn't have written any of those books if I hadn't written a magazine article many years ago on the 50th anniversary of Lassie. Hmm. Uh, and actually, it was, it was Eric Knight writing the story Lassie Come Home for the Saturday Evening Post. And I wrote that story, and they came back. That, it was published in a number of different magazines. And, and by, uh, Penguin Books, Viking Penguin, came to me and talked to me and said, would you be interested in doing a book looking at the first 50 years of Lassie and show business? And, you know, I'm a baby boomer. You talk about exciting. You know, that's kind of cool. I mean, yeah. to think about the, you're going to get to sit there and watch Lassie, and now suddenly you're going to get to, in, you know, spend time with June Lockhart and John Provost and Tommy Reddick and, and Bob Weatherwax, who was the son of the original trainer, Rudd Weatherwax, and all of these people and actually be around for quite a while, Lassie 7 and Lassie 8, which I was, and um, and learned. And we actually wrote a book later on called Lassie's Guides to a Family's Best Friend that taught you how to do 50 of the things that you see Lassie do in movies and how that process works and how easy it is to train dogs. Um, but to have an opportunity to be on that tour, to be around people, I always said that I remember the first time I was on CNN, I was with Lassie. And it was it was funny because I always thought Lassie came off better in the interview than I did. <laughs> uh, the, uh, because Bob Weatherwax is over there making hand signals, you know, on what Lassie should respond and raise the paw to, you know, say up and down stuff like that. We were in a. Uh, I've never been overwhelmed quite like I was when I was with Lassie. Uh, we did Good Morning America, and then we're in Central Park, and I am there. We. There are thousands of people who found out that Lassie was in Central Park, and they're just surrounding us. The New York's finest are there protecting us. And I got a tap on the shoulder, and it was from four Japanese ladies. And, and one of them asked the question, is that the real Lassie? And I said, oh, yeah, this is, this is Lassie 8. This is the great, 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 great grandson of the original Lassie. Hmm. And she said, we watch Lassie every day in Japan. 
Wow. And, and I had had, a, I, ironically enough, an Ethiopian uh, cab driver that morning who had told me the same thing, that he'd watched Lassie growing up in Ethiopia. And so I'm talking to these ladies, and one of these ladies is absolutely one of the most beautiful women I've ever seen in my life. And she said, could I have a picture made with Lassie? Well, this woman had the beauty that probably Elizabeth Taylor did, at the age of 22 or 23 or 24. And I, I took her over to the limousine where, we, where the New York Times was actually taking pictures of Lassie for the next day. And, um, and in the midst of taking pictures with her, I, I looked back at the ladies behind me and I, I said, you know, who is this beautiful woman? And she said, well, they gave me her name and I didn't quite understand them, but I looked it up later. But she was the most important movie star in Japan. And I said, well, are you all here on, you know, touring New York City? And she said, no, we are here making a movie on Tavern on the Green. We've rented Tavern on the Green for two days to make this movie that she's a part in. And I said, you mean on a break from making a movie, this woman walked clear across Central Park to actually just get to see Lassie? And uh, the lady said, no, no, she shut the whole movie set down so she could come over and see Lassie. <laughs> And I got to I got to realizing at that particular point what an incredible uh, effect that one dog with that one television show that was on for 20 years had on people across the globe. And I think that dog with all the things that dog did, and there were actually five or six generations of that dog in that 20 year span on television, really showed us the potential that all dogs had. And I think that may have been where baby boomers in particular got this incredible love of dogs and this wanting to bring dogs into our life. You know, something else that is a funny story to go along with this. We were on, uh, I think CBS referred to their, I don't know if it was the morning show or the early show when we were on it, you know, that it's changed names a couple of times when I was on this early morning CBS show that, uh, that corresponds to good morning America and the today show. And at the time, Paul Lazan and ooh, another guy were the host, the main host of that show. And it was so funny because we were on at the same time Gorbachev was on uh, when he was touring the United States. And I actually heard them backstage arguing over who was going to get to interview Lassie. <laughs> and at one point, Harry Smith, that was at one yeah, yeah. point, Paul Lazan told Harry Smith, I will give you Gorbachev if I can interview Lassie. And um, Lassie and I ultimately got interviewed by both of them. Oh. So uh, now viewers out there, when, when I use the term he with Lassie, the first Lassie in the, in the movie Lassie Come Home was named Pal. Pal was a dog that was a rescue dog, essentially. It was a dog nobody wanted. Um, and they had, had a different dog that was going to play, play Lassie that was a pedigreed, incredible dog that just would not swim. And so Pal was brought in as, as the stunt double, and Pal did so well <laughs> that they kept Pal around and fired fired the pedigree dog. And Pal became the Lassie in six NGM movies, and was, at the age of fourteen, actually played Lassie in the first CBS movie pilot. The interesting thing about um, that story is that Pal raised more money in World War II than almost anybody did for uh, for uh, bond drives and things like that and went all over the country. And and really, Lassie was very much um, a central figure in the campaign uh, in World War II to raise money. And that is why I got the opportunity 
to tell about that at the National Archives, the D Distinguished uh, Lecture Series. And so that also got me into the National, National Archives. Uh, so the situations that I had with Lassie, I remember one night at the Louise Mandrell Theater in Pigeon Forge, Tennessee, we had we were retiring Lassie 8 and introducing Lassie 9. And it was just part of the production show, and we used about 10 minutes of it. And I'm leaning up against a wall watching people after the show is over get in line to get their picture made with Lassie. And this one lady, after her picture was made, petted the, the big old dog. And Howard, that was Lassie 8, was a big dog. Uh, and, and she said to Bob Weatherwax, he's just as beautiful as I thought he was. And as she stood up from where she was taking the picture, a man handed her her white cane. She was blind. Oh. And the impact of, of beauty goes beyond seeing a dog. You can feel a dog's heart, love, loyalty. And I think that is why that television show lasted for 20 years and why people all over the world still watch those reruns to this day is very much, if you can be as good as your dog is, right. you're a pretty good person. And, right. and that, you know, maybe we need to be trying to live up to the person that our dog is rather, and that's why I named the book Man's Best Hero, because I think that if, I think I said the introduction of the original book on this series, if man was more like Man's Best Hero, the world would be a lot better place to live. Yeah, that's so true. Ace, let me take a break. I appreciate you telling me all three books, because I want to hear from all three books. I know we've got sure. a full hour, but uh, do uh, do uh, dip in from each one of the books, because I want to I want to hear about all of them. Uh, Ace Collins. And we'll, is, give, and, and we'll give you a little more Lassie trivia. Just oh, no, I want more Lassie when I, when I come back. Ace Collins is my guest. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the show. Ace Collins is my guest. And we're chatting about dogs, man's best friend. And I still want more Lassie trivia. Okay. I, I mentioned earlier that I always call Lassie he because all the Lassies have been played. There are 10 generations of Lassie now, always sons of the previous dog. Okay. And they've always been played by a boy. Well, the first one, Pal, got the part because... Uh, the the starring dog, the female, did not want to swim across a river representing the Scottish Highlands, you know, and mm -hmm. <laughs> he got the part. And so naturally he was Lassie for the first uh, six movies. Now, he, he ironically in the second movie did not play Lassie. He played Laddie, Lassie's son. But that's another story altogether. But Anyway, as, as, as Lassie went through and toured, everyone thought Lassie was a female. Well, after that, they started using males as Lassies on the television show because the male was about 15% bigger than the female. And so you could use a nine-year-old John Provost to play a three, a, a six-year-old John Provost because the kid looks so much smaller next to the big dog mm. and also interesting uh, they were doing 39 episodes a year back then they were so you were shooting nine months a year a female loses its coat twice a year a male just loses its coat a little bit at a time as the year goes on it is never totally coatless so to speak and therefore the male would look the same from episode to episode to episode now i had to watch all those lassie episodes 20 years of lassie 39 episodes a year for most years 
when I was doing the book and all the movies, I can actually watch an episode of Lassie and tell you which dog it is. <laughs> uh, I, I kid you not. I can look yeah. at it and say, oh, that's Lassie 3 right there. And if you go on wherever your Lassie is being syndicated right now, the way the syndication package is put together, most of the shows are with John Provost, who played Timmy and ran for about nine years there. The, the dog that Timmy is calling at the first of the show is actually Lassie 2. That's Junior. Um, and that was the, what they called him. They called him Junior. The dog that is walking with Timmy is not even a Lassie. It's called Spook. And Spook was a dog that was Lassie's brother that filled in for six months while Lassie was treated for cancer. So that would have been while Junior was treated for cancer. The dog at the end, raising its paw up when the theme song um is playing is actually Lassie three, that's baby. And so you have three different Lassies in the credits, opening and closing credits of that, and no one ever notices. And I, I look at it and it drives me crazy because I want the same Lassie throughout all three of those things. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's, uh, uh, but it's really fascinating to look at the training process on, on a movie set and how that applies to everything else. For those of you who are quarantined right now, can't get out of the house and want to train your dog to be more like Lassie, I'll give you one little hint. Get a tennis ball. You're asking, why do you get a tennis ball? Well, start training your dog with a tennis ball. Have him fetch it. Have him pick it up. And one of the things you do teach a dog with a tennis ball that I learned from Lassie is you put the dog, the ball right in front and say, pick it up, Lassie. And that dog will pick up that ball. You know, once you train and then, you know, put it down, Lassie. Well, then... Once you learn how to do that really well, you can cut the cut that tennis ball in the back and snap it over a doorknob and say, pick it up, Lassie. And that dog will go to pick that dog up and trying to pick it up will twist that knob and learn how to open doors. Mm. And so what they did was use tennis balls throughout because you could slip them over things and do things with them to teach some of those most elementary tricks. Um, on the show. But when Lassie, if you remember watching movies or watching when Lassie, let's say Timmy was in trouble. And by the way, the big joke is Timmy's in the well. Actually, John Provost playing Timmy was never in a well in any of the seven seasons. Okay, that's, that's <laughs> he got in all kinds of trouble, but yeah. he was never in a well. That's one of the John Provost and I still laugh about that. But um, the that when you want, when Lassie would come up to the parents to say, you know, Timmy is in trouble and they would be not paying attention. Lassie would bark and then run off and then come back and bark again and run off and come back. That is a series of six different uh, tricks, if you will, or commands that Lassie has learned to put together in what they referred to in the script as beckon. Lassie beckoning you to follow Hmm. So they're putting together those things. And believe me, you can actually do that with almost any dog. And because it is a little more complicated with a dog like Lassie, because when you're on a movie set or a TV set, you're doing all of that with hand signals because your voice obviously would destroy the scene. Right. And so Lassie is responding to hand signals. Well, I wish I was you could see me right now because I'm actually doing the hand signals. That's how well trained they've got me. I'm doing the hand signals to Lassie. One of the things you can do if you put all your fingers together on your thumb and you open it up real slowly and then close them, that is the command for yawning. Oh. If you Lassie to yawn, you do that. I was on CNN doing the interview one night with Lassie sitting beside me, and Bob Weatherwax, after a question that Bob thought was kind of boring, signaled for Lassie to yawn. So he did his hands like that off camera. Lassie missed the signal, but I yawned anyway. 
so I was well trained by the end of that first book tour. Uh, you know, it's it is just, uh, and I'll tell you the power of dogs, and and I think I can emphasize that with a collie that I had named Lady. Um, I would take ladies lady to nursing homes for a couple hours every week. She was a therapy dog. And at one time, uh, Susie Hafer was a, a head uh, nurse at a facility uh, in Texas, and she asked me to go into a room I'd never gone into because I only went to rooms where the doors were open and people, I could see their reaction to dog, do you want to see the collie? Well, this one room had the door closed, and I never stopped in. And Susie took me back to that room that day and said, would you mind going and seeing this lady, Mrs. Burton, and I said, no, no, I'll be fine. Mrs. Burton was, she looked closer to death than life as she sat in her wheelchair, very thin, very drawn, uh, very lifeless, almost a dead look in the eyes. And then she turned the light on and we brought Lassie in and the, the woman looked at the dog and her face kind of lit up. And um, so I signaled for lady to go across and lay her, sit, sit beside her and then lay her head uh, in the woman's lap and the lady started petting her and the lady looked up at me and started to talk about Lassie because you know obviously a collie in most people's mind is Lassie mm -hmm. and in the process of, of talking about it, she told me about when she was a young woman that she had taken her children to see Lassie in a theater I think one of the old MGM movies I think it was Son of Lassie and then it, when she was a grandmother in the 50s and 60s, her grandkids would come over and watch Lassie on TV. And she told me about two of their three of the episodes she, that meant so much to her. And eventually she quit petting my dog and she quit talking and everything went quiet. And, and the head nurse, Susie Hafer, signaled for me to leave the room. And we left the room and closed the door. And I looked over to the head nurse and she was crying. And I said, did I do something wrong? And she said, no, Mrs. Burton hasn't said anything in two years. Wow. This is this is the power hmm. of not just a dog. But I, I, I called Bob Weatherwax this afternoon because I and that afternoon because I'd done the Lassie book. I'd done two television specials with the Lassie by that time, and I said, "This is the power of Lassie. This by what you have presented in movies and on television, and shown what this dog can do. This woman who hadn't spoken in two years and has dementia, and probably Alzheimer's, was opened up, and for ten minutes." Lassie gave this, this woman her, her dignity back, her life back. And I think we as human beings may not have that power, but God's creatures like Lassie and like dogs in particular have the power to open up hearts and open up minds and unveil memories that haven't been thought about in a long, long time. And that is one of the most incredible personal moments of my yeah, life. Phenomenal. I mean, it's just amazing. Yeah. Ace, we got lots more to talk about. Uh, Ace Collins is my guest. You can head to acecollins.com, and all of these books are up on the website. Um, Man's Best Friend, and also uh, Service Tales, and then In the Line of Fire. And we're going to talk about those two books as well when we come back. Thanks for joining me today. Again, it's acecollins.com. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to the show. Ace Collins is my guest, phenomenal storyteller, author of nearly 100 books, and we're talking about dogs today and got a lot of inf- interesting uh, uh, information about Lassie growing up mm-hmm. watching it myself. And you know, I bet dogs are loving this uh, shelter-in thing because the owners are home all day long now. Yeah, my cat's ready for my wife not to spend as much time at home. The, the cat is, the cat is sitting there thinking, you know, there, aren't you people supposed to go someplace? You know, um, we might as well mention the other great hero dog while we're at it, and that's Ren Ten Ten, because Ren, there's an entire chapter on Ren Ten Ten in my uh, Service Tales book. Uh, Ren Ten Ten is was actually found as a puppy. Uh, on a military battlefield in World War II by an American GI who spent his the rest of the war carrying that dog around with him, that puppy around with him, and brought that smuggled that puppy back to the United States um, and eventually ended up out in California. And that German shepherd that was found on a battlefield in France in the midst of bombing and poison gas and everything else, that dog... Uh, became the first great canine figure on uh, in movie in the movie business in the silent era, one of the biggest movie uh, stars of all time during that time remained a star until about 1932 1933, and the that particular dog had given birth to I mean had sired some puppies and the next Ren Tin Tin Two was about to take over and suddenly dogs weren't cool in Hollywood anymore. And old Ren Tin Tin and his puppy were pretty much out of work. But um, one of the most wonderful stories about the Ren Tin Tin thing is when Ren Tin Tin was very old, he had a stroke. And the doctor told the owner that it will be within 15, 20 minutes, this dog will die. Well, every night the dog was visited by its neighbor, the huge movie star Gene Harlow would come over and play with Ren Tin Tin bring it treats, and um, that dog hung on for 10 hours until Harlow got through with her movie shooting and came back to go over and greet him, and with her holding uh, the original Ren 1010, Ren 1010 number one, in her lap, Mm. uh, that dog finally died. But what resurrected the dog, by the way, and what led to the dog still being known to this day was that the American military got to looking at the old silent movies of this dog doing these amazing things and stunts in this movie. And they contacted the owner and said, can you help us train military dogs for World War II? And Ren 10-10-2 became a military dog that went out and served in the army and then later came back and helped start the TV show. And, and also Ren 1010's owner trained hundreds of other dogs for the military. And so the great start of military dogs in the United States can be trained to a rescue from a World War II battlefield of a dog, that a puppy that had been abandoned in France by its owner. And so it, it is amazing how all of that came together. And there's no telling, Lassie saved all kinds of lives on screen. There is no telling how many lives were saved in World War II by Ren 1010 because of the training of Ren 1010's owner on all of these military dogs that served all across the globe. And so, and so that's, that's one of the most amazing stories in that book um, of, of service tales is the fact that Ren 1010 
in real life was a real, real hero as well. Wow. And Ace, let's not forget Sergeant Stubby. Oh, gosh. I love Stubby Sergeant Stubby. Stubby in World War II, and you can actually go to an Ivy League school and see a, and see a statue of Stubby. And as you cool should. He was World War I, wasn't he? World War I. I mean, yeah, yeah, Stubby. Yeah, and Stubby was a dog that nobody wanted. That Little got, Boston Terrier. Little Boston Terrier that in the midst of these these military men training for to go overseas, kind of followed them around, was adopted. They smuggled Stubby overseas. Stubby was amazing because Stubby could sense artillery coming in before these people knew about it and would would scramble around and alert people to get in their foxholes. He also could sense the poison gas coming in yeah. before it got there and people would get their gas mask on. Yeah. This particular dog saved literally hundreds of lives in in the midst of uh, uh, battle in World uh, War One, the Great War, as they called right. it then. And, and it. You know, it just goes on because you look at the uh, if you go to Gettysburg, there's a there is a statue of a little a little terrier named Scotty, you know, and, and it's named Sally. Rather, Sally was a, war, a Civil War hero. It was a, initially a mascot. But this hero had the ability to warn people with when artillery shells were coming in and everything else and saved hundreds of lives, probably in the Civil War of Union troops. But maybe more importantly, would make the rounds every night, the hospital tents, and and bring some type, according to the letters that I read, security and hope. And and just having that dog around gave some of those men the will to live for another day. And I, I think that is amazing. There There is a story out of Arkansas that I love when it comes to service dogs. And it's about dogs that aren't wanted, dogs that are on death row, dogs that are about to be put down and an organization grabs those dogs in a day or two before they're put down. And where do those dogs go? Those dogs go to prison. And if you have behaved well enough in prison, if your contact has been good enough, you are trained to be a dog trainer. And you were assigned one of those dogs. It's called Paul's in Prison here in Arkansas. And these are some of the most hardened criminals that there are. These are criminals who are not going to get out. Mm. They're there for life, you know, without parole. But they train these dogs, and these dogs are trained to become everything from therapy dogs for people who have uh, conditions that need to be alerted to, such as epilepsy. Uh, they have other issues of mobility that the, these dogs train for, or just trained to be pets, Okay. And these prisoners do that and train these dogs and these dogs live with them. And these dogs that are on death row are trained by prisoners who have no hope. And what I have been told is the dogs are amazing when they're adopted because they're so well-trained and they're so loving. The prisoners, though, whole lifestyle changes because in these prisons, to get to be with these dogs, you have to show that you have a new lease on life. And mm. what it's opened the door for these prisoners to not only find out about the love that a dog can present to them. But a lot of these prisoners have turned their life over to Christ because they've also found a love they didn't know through the dog, and that's turned them on to the love that they can find in Jesus. And so, once again, the power of a dog to open doors and open hearts, it cannot it cannot be emphasized enough. You know, I, I made kind of a comment about, you know, therapy dogs in one of my books, and the paragraph read, uh, I was reminded of a familiar African proverb, it takes a village. After conducting the interviews and doing the research for this book, 
I would like to suggest a new proverb, it takes a dog. Once you've read the unique tales of these dogs who are service animals, you will understand the power and the magic and the miracles that can be performed by a dog helping a person overcome their disabilities. It's just, it's incredible. Yeah, it's so powerful. Um, so let's talk a little bit about Service Tales. Sure. Service Tales looks at all the different ways that dogs help people. And, and we're, where do you start off with Service Tales? You're going to start off in a logical spot. You're going to talk start off talking about a man named Morris Frank who went blind. And Morris Frank, therefore, had his mobility, and this is 100 and some odd years ago, taken away from him. He was a man who was wealthy enough to still travel, and when he got over on one of his European trips with his family, this man with this cane was traveling around, because they, even back then they taught you how to walk with a white cane. And he got to know a, a dog trainer, and he asked the dog, you know, could, could this German shepherd be trained to lead me around? And they worked with him, and they did, and this man came back with this dog that could lead him through the streets of Nashville, that could stop at curbs, that could alert him for wagon traffic and other things. And people were so impressed that they said, man, we want one of these dogs for, for uh, this veteran over here who's blind. And Morris Frank actually created guide dogs in the United States that has now gone mm. all over the world and was the first, the first person who, though he couldn't see, saw the potential of dogs to become the eyes of people. I don't, I'm not sure without Morris Frank that we wouldn't that we would have other kinds of service dogs, uh, and, and certainly the only service dogs we had for generations were seeing eye dogs. But you start thinking about the impact that seeing eye dogs have had, opening up the world to people who couldn't see so they could safely travel, um, and then you open up to the fact that in on 9/11, in the midst of what was going on in the World Trade Center. There was a man with a guide dog who was on one of the top floors, and they were going down the steps at the World Trade Center trying to get out, and the power went off and the lights went out. Well, how do you, how do you guide someone down the steps when the lights are out? The dog not only guided his owner who was blind, the dog guided 150 other people down those steps as well as they followed that owner, and they got out about five minutes before that building collapsed. They would not have gotten out if it wasn't for a trained guide dog. Wow. You know, so, but now guide dogs do more than just lead blind people. Guide dogs are the ears of people and alert them when the doorbell rings, things like that. Guide dogs, my wife has a guide dog in one of her classes at the university when we actually have sessions that are not distance learning sessions like we're having now, that is a, is a dog that the, a young woman has incredible anxiety. This dog calms her down. That, that is a dog that helps her calm down. Uh, in this book, we mentioned dogs that can predict seizures that can save your life literally by pushing you into a chair before you have a seizure and so that you don't fall down and have that seizure. There are guide dogs that function now for Alzheimer's patients to make sure they don't walk into wrong places that stay with them all the time, that guide them and keep them out of danger. There are mobility dogs that are such as dogs which are large dogs like German Shepherds, Newfoundlands and others that walk with people who, are, who have balance issues and lean into them to keep them from falling down. 
the things that you can train a dog to do in a computer age are still things that I'm not sure we'll ever be able to do with technology. Yeah, so true. The dog senses what it needs to do and does it. And the most amazing thing we're looking at now is dogs that are able to sense diseases such as cancer before we can even have blood tests and, and x-rays and MRIs that can see, they can sense that cancer as well. Yeah, I've seen uh, guide dogs, um, service dogs that can brace themselves in a locked position. So if you're on the couch, you can you can get yourself up using your dog as leverage. Yeah, those are mobility service dogs. Uh, they use Collies, German Shepherds, St. Bernards, Newfoundlands. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and those dogs have given back lives to not just senior citizens, but but a lot of, of uh, men who've come back from the military with missing limbs and things like that who need just a little bit of help getting up. And also people with balance issues that are brought on by um, uh, diseases such as blood pressure and others, high blood pressure and others. I think that we, when you look at what dogs have the impact to do on with returning veterans um, from war, it is amazing. And they're more needed now than they ever have been. And people ask why. Well, why weren't they needed as much in World War II? Because when you look at the old TV show MASH, you saw these pe- these surgeons operating on these people and saving their lives. What you don't realize now is that 90% of the people who would have died on battlefields, thanks to the advances in modern medicine, live. And those 90% come home, but they come home with severe disabilities. They would have died you know, in World War II, in the Korean War, even in Vietnam. But they come back with severe disabilities. The dog, uh, a properly trained dog that is specifically trained for each individual disability that, an, that a uh, a person has is important. I have a step nephew. Uh, I don't know. You, that's not a step nephew. My wife has a ne- has a, a a niece who is married to uh, a, a war vet, and this this one this this man made it back through college because the dog was trained to sense anxiety and calm him down when he would have the post war uh, anxiety. Wow. Uh, disorder crop up. And so I'm not sure that I'm not sure we have even touched what dogs can do on a service level now. But what this book is filled up with is it's filled up with stories of all the various things that dogs can do. And that the name of that book is Service Tales, which mm-hmm. is another in the series of Man's Best Heroes books. Yeah. And yeah. They've won a lot of awards, but that, that that is not a big deal in these books. To me, the big deal in these books is it it really does, I think, emphasize the potential each one of our our pets have to make an impact on ourselves and others if we care enough to give them an opportunity to do something. Mm-hmm. Um, Let me take one last break, Ace. Ace Collins is my guest. You can head over to acecollins.com. We'll be right back. show ace collins is my guest he's written almost 100 books but three that he's written are about dogs true stories um man's best friend service tales and in the line of fire 
And uh, recently, uh, Ace, I was watching a trailer for a movie, which I have not seen, but it was called The Call of the Wild with Harrison Ford. And in the two-minute trailer, there's this scene where there's a woman out on the ice, and she breaks through and falls into the uh, water. And I tell you, that dog tore after her and jumped in without thinking for a nanosecond. And that's just what dogs that dog did. And I think of the the fearlessness, the bravery, the loyalty, the devotion that, that dogs have. It's it's pretty powerful. Maybe no, maybe, su- maybe no uh, surprise maybe, that it's dogs as God spelled backwards. Yeah, and, and you know, there there was Albert Payson Terhoon uh, really put things in perspective in the fact that, you know, God gives us dogs to show us how we should live. <laughs> uh, yeah. and, 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 and to a certain degree in, in using you know, God spelled backward. Trahoon also put this on, which as a dog owner, boy, this, this puts weight on your shoulders. But Trahoon said, man has to, has to die to see his God face to face. An owner, a, a dog sees his God every, every time he looks into your face. And you should act like God to your dog. And boy, you know, that if, if you think about, maybe we, <laughs> I think most people, if they love a pet, their love for others expands as well. Mm-hmm. In other words, it's an ability for them to go beyond and translate that love. Uh, but the, there are no limits. You know, Trevor Thomas is his story is in this book on service tales. He was a man who went blind when he was in his twenties, and he was a lawyer. He had, he had, he was an athlete. He conquered everything, and suddenly he's he's blind, totally blind cannot even distinguish light and has no purpose in life. And someone convinces him to get a guide dog and he gets a guide dog and he starts walking around the town where he lives and the town where he lives is near Appalachia. So he decides I'll walk a bit with friends and my dog on the Appalachian trail. This man now has walked the major trails all over the world with his guide dogs and he has walked trails that normal people would not even dare walk mm. from in the Rocky Mountains. That is how much faith he has in the guide dog. And that's how much the guide dog has expanded this man's world. It's expanded to the point where he literally makes his living hiking. And people pay him to hike just to inspire them. Uh, Becky Andrews, who is out of Salt Lake City, is another blind woman who went blind very, uh, when she was a young mother and she thought, I can't be a counselor. I can't do anything. She was a therapist. Uh, she got a guide dog and she starts running and she and the guide dog now run marathons together. Uh, as besides the guide dog also, as she said, is her co-therapist because the guide dog goes to her office and sits down while she deals with people who have tremendous psychological problems. And that dog being in that room will allows them to also talk to the dog, pet the dog. And most people don't allow you to pet the guide dog, but she does. And that dog has made some breakthroughs with people's lives as well. Um, There is no end to what a dog can do. A dog is limited by what our expectations of that dog are. Um, And if we open up a dog's world, we open up our own as well. Somebody said once, if your dog is fat, you're not getting enough walk. You're not, you're not doing enough walking. Um, 
a dog has the ability also to keep us in shape. In other words, it, it's a dog that can go out. Uh, taking my blind dog walking every afternoon is one of the best parts of my day. Uh, by the way, funny story that's not in the book, but it, it's a great dog story from my youth. My um, grandfather had a prize hunting dog named Rex, English Pointer. And he had trained, Rex went everywhere with him. My, my grandfather was an Arkansas farmer, lived down a, a half mile lane from US Highway Route 62. And when my grandfather got cancer and could, uh, that dog would go everywhere with him, including the mailbox. Well, when my grandfather got so sick, he could no longer go to the mailbox, he trained the dog, he put a strap on the mailbox and trained the dog to go get his newspaper and his mail every day and bring it to him. Well, in the last few moments of my grandfather's life, with the family gathered around him in that little Arkansas farmhouse, my grandfather, who, by the way, had a great sense of humor and was a great practical joker, looked up at my grandmother and said, Minnie, I'm going to have the last laugh. And the entire room went silent because they were wondering, what is he talking about? And he died before she could ask. And so we're worried. We're opening up closets very slowly, thinking something's going to fall out and scare us. You know, we're looking underneath beds. What has he done? And after a few days, nothing happened. And we thought, well, he just told us that so that we can relax and not focus on his passing. And that's when we noticed we weren't getting the mail and the newspaper anymore. And my grandfather had trained Rex that if he was not there to swim out into the middle of the four acre pond and drop the mail and the newspaper in the middle of the pond. <laughs> and and when so what the next <laughs> next day, my uncle went out and got the mail before the dog got there and the dog started sleeping by the mailbox oh, to make sure that, that never so happened funny. again. And eventually they had to sell the dog because the dog was not going to quit getting, keeping them from getting the mail and the newspaper. Oh. So, you know, that is one of my great training stories from childhood. But, but it does show the fact that the dog was – my grandfather expected the dog to do that, and the dog was going to keep doing that if my grandfather was there or not. It also showed a little bit about it, my grandfather's wonderful sense of humor as well. So, yeah. So I want to uh, ask – uh, you know, that loyalty story is just wonderful. And I remember the movie about a dog that uh, would walk to the train station every day with his owner. And then the, the owner had a heart attack, never came home, and the dog still went to the train station every day for the next nine years. Oh, yeah. Well, you know, and a, a classic example of that, you can go back 100 years to Greyfriars, Greyfriars Bobby, which ironically enough, Lassie played that dog in, in one of the MGM Lassie movies. But that was the little dog that would go every day uh, with its owner to eat and various other th places. And then when the owner died, the dog would go to the church graveyard every day and sit on its owner's grave all day long mm -hmm. and then go back at night. And eventually there was a pub owner that started feeding that dog in the morning at night on its way. And you can actually go to Edinburgh, Scotland and, and see that particular place in that particular cemetery where that dog went. And eventually, they, of course, they buried the dog in the same cemetery that the, uh, the owner was buried in. But that dog went to that cemetery for 10 more years every day, rain or shine, oh. snow or heat, and sat on its owner's grave. Ace, we only have two minutes left. Tell me another lesson you learned from your blind dog, Sammy. I think the ability to not let 
darkness scare you? Mm. And, and Sammy cannot see anything, and he can't even distinguish light or dark, you know. Um, and so, but Sammy nevertheless is very excited to go out and explore. Uh, and, and yeah, because so, they see with so, their nose, don't they? Mostly? Yeah, it's, yeah, essentially speaking, their nose and their ears is what, what mm-hmm. they're seeing and hearing with. And so Sammy and I, when we go out, Sammy's curiosity is boundless, even as an old dog like he is now. And so when you look at Sammy, and I write about Sammy in one of the books, but when you when you look at Sammy, Sammy teaches your you your potential to hear things you didn't hear and to sense things you didn't hear. But Sammy is also there to show you that life, you shouldn't feel sorry for yourself once you lose something. Uh, and in Sammy's case, he's never known how to see. And people say all the time, well, gosh, I feel so sorry for him. Sammy doesn't feel sorry for himself. Right. Sammy's just enjoying life. And I think that's one of the great lessons in, in life that we're given when we're given a bad break. Don't dwell on it, but find something you can embrace and something you can celebrate. And, and Sammy, the blind collie that we have, celebrates life each and every day. I love to take him to college softball games. He loves the crack of the bat. He likes to hear the, the sound of the players talking. He loves to hear the fans. It's amazing to take him to an event like that and see him sense it through his hearing and through his uh, smell rather than through his eyes. Yeah. Ace, do come back on the show again soon. I love our time together. Thank you so much for being such a great maybe guest. The, hey, maybe the next time we come back, I'll be talking about book number 100. We've got to get my agent to sell it first. Though. Yeah, that'd be so, nice. All right, thanks. Ace Collins has been my guest. Head over to acecollins.com to learn more about his writing and his books. We're going to take a little break. When we come back, Dr. Everett Piper will be joining us, and then Dr. Tim Walsh, all in hour two. We'll be right back. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.